From the outset, it became evident that the Third Crusade would distinguish itself as the best equipped of the campaigns. The meticulous preparations not only underscored its significance, but also secured an enduring place in history books. Three kings, including our focal point Richard and his close ally Philip, the King of France, joined forces with Frederick Barbarossa, the German Holy Roman Emperor. Together, these three rulers represented the most formidable kingdoms in Christendom. Frederick opted for a land journey, amassing a colossal force. Contemporary chroniclers suggested that his army numbered as high as 100,000 men, including 20,000 knights, though some questioned these figures. Meanwhile, Richard and Philip chose the unconventional route, traveling via the sea to the Holy Land, departing separately from the more traditional overland path. With preparations in full swing and troops gathering on January 21, 1189, Richard found himself uncertain about the detours he would encounter on the journey to the Holy Land. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the English king, Richard the Lionheart. Episode number two, Preparations for the Crusade. For Richard, the choice of ships not only dictated the mode of transport, but also influenced the kind of individuals he sought for his conquest of the Holy Land. Given the limited space on the vessels, a fee was imposed for joining the crusade, a cost borne by the crusaders themselves. This ensured that those standing with Richard were individuals of means, as having money was a prerequisite for owning quality armor, which in turn was a prerequisite for becoming a knight. This distinction wasn't merely the opinion of someone born into wealth. It was rooted in the practicality that financial stability was essential for equipping oneself as a knight. Unlike prior crusades where individuals sought to earn their fortunes along the way, which often meant that they resorted to looting towns indiscriminately, Richard's approach demanded a personal financial commitment. By requiring a fee, he ensured that participants risked their own fortunes rather than seeking one. Additionally, the fee made it more challenging for religious pilgrims to join the crusade en route, streamlining logistics and allowing Richard to focus entirely on defeating Salah al-Din, the formidable Muslim general whom Richard viewed as a worthy adversary to his troubadourian eyes. The decision to use ships raised the question, why hadn't previous crusades employed this mode of transportation? The answer lie in the exorbitant cost. Richard, crowned King of England on September 3, 1189 at Westminster Abbey in London, had to finance ships, weapons, men, and provisions. To fund this expedition, he added to the Sal al-Din tithe, a tax on all of England's residents as well as selling off royal estates and castles. Richard even humorously remarked that he would have sold London if there had been a buyer, 
While this might sound shocking, it reflected Richard's prioritization of Aquitaine over anything or anyone in the British Isles. His policies leveraging his father's bureaucratic tax system aimed to extract every penny from the country. So much so that one of the most famous versions of the Robin Hood tale emerges from this historical period. In this popular rendition, Richard, the revered hero of England, is away fighting for the glory of God in the Middle East, leaving his less than worthy brother John and the nefarious Sheriff of Nottingham to excessively tax the people of England for their own indulgences. While it is true that John later attempted to undermine his brother's rule, it was Richard's initial taxation policies that contributed to the suffering of England's citizens. Leaving the country immediately after being crowned as a new regent is inherently risky. Richard, who didn't even speak the local language and chose French as his mode of communication, appointed his four-year-old nephew Arthur as his heir. Richard hoped that this move would not only curb scheming in his absence, but also neutralize potential threats from within his own family. The Devil's Brood, as they were known, didn't magically reconcile after their father's death. Richard took strategic measures, such as naming Joffrey his half-brother as the Archbishop of York, an appointment that required forcing him into the priesthood, a process that saw Joffrey literally carried in protest to his own ordination. In John's case, Richard granted him extensive lands and titles, six entire counties, a generosity seemingly disproportionate to John's limited experience which was highlighted by his brief and misguided rule as King of Ireland. John's Irish blunders began with an inappropriate response to the traditional Irish kiss of peace, involving an ill-conceived yank on the local minister's beard. Richard hoped the action of giving his brother land would appease potential rivals and maintain their contentment. He even arranged a marriage for John with the wealthy heiress Isabella of Gloucester. Expressing particular concern about John, Richard compelled both brothers to swear an oath not to set foot on English soil for the next three years. To manage the kingdom's affairs in his absence, Eleanor, Richard's mother, assumed the role of Queen Regent ruling the empire despite being in her 60s at the time. It didn't take long for the ever-treacherous John to break his oath. As the plot to usurp Richard's kingdom began the moment his elder brother's ships departed on July 4, 1190, Richard, sailing towards an entirely different set of problems, some of which were unknown to the English king at the time, appeared to have all the right intentions regarding the holy mission that had been set forth by the Pope. Despite his lack of outward displays of deep religious inclination or even any love for his religion, Richard saw a unique opportunity. Salah al-Din, highly regarded as one of the world's greatest generals, had successfully united Syria, Egypt, and Jerusalem effortlessly dispatching the crusader forces in and around the world's holiest city. 
While Richard identified as a Christian, his true religious passion seemed to be warfare, and the Third Crusade provided him the chance to prove his worth on the global stage. Although Richard sailed separately from most of the army, he made clear that this was a holy mission. A select group of carpenters disembarked first at each port that they visited, constructing a series of gallows that men had to pass underneath to disembark for shore leave. Richard aimed to prevent the typical atrocities of prior crusader armies, often rooted in medieval Christian anti-Semitism and the creation of pogroms along their wake. Harsh penalties were introduced, including a law that mandated tying any murderer to the body of their victim before being thrown overboard for the sea to judge. This was not merely an eye-for-eye justice, as crusaders who attacked someone with a knife had both hands chopped off. Richard wanted his men to save their fighting for the Holy Land, While there were fewer atrocities committed by Richard's men, that doesn't mean there weren't any. One of the most infamous Jewish pogroms occurred at Clifford's Tower in York on March 16, 1190. The crowd initially formed upon hearing of the events necessitating the Third Crusade, but a few individuals in debt to York's Jewish moneylenders turned them into a frenzied mob. The debtors spread a rumor that Richard had ordered the expulsion of all Jews from England. This disturbing decree did come to pass, but the rumor was a century premature. In 1209, King Edward I issued the Edict of Expulsion, removing all Jews from the British Isles and setting the precedent for Spain's similar expulsion order in 1492. Seeking refuge from the violent mob that believed expulsion was imminent, the Jewish community of York sought shelter in Clifford's Tower, a Mott and Bailey keep originally constructed by William the Conqueror. The crowd, incited by false rumors and anti-Semitic sentiments, surrounded the tower for three days and nights, creating a dire situation for the trapped Jewish refugees who were running out of food. Despite assurances from the mob that they would be treated kindly if they accepted forced baptism, the Jews of York, distrustful of a mob stained already with Jewish blood, chose to trust their own hands over the promises of the hostile people. The harrowing tale of what transpired inside Clifford's Tower is difficult to narrate. Faced with the grim reality and the constant threat outside, Families in York reached a tragic decision. They entered into a suicide pact. Fathers mercifully ended the lives of their own family members before turning to their neighbors to accept their own inevitable deaths. Over 150 Jewish men, women, and children perished on that fateful night. Richard, informed of the massacre, dismissed both the city's constable and sheriff though no individuals were ever punished for the horrific event. Richard's focus had already shifted towards the Holy Land, leaving the tragedy in York unresolved. Today, Clifford's Tower stands as a somber monument to this dark chapter in history, 
The tower is surrounded by daffodils, whose color and six-pointed shape echo the Star of David, serving as a poignant memorial to the victims of the massacre, a testament to the enduring impact of religious intolerance and resilience of those who suffered. The first major stop for the Crusaders was the island of Sicily, situated off the coast of Italy where Richard and Philip planned to meet and coordinate their roles for the upcoming crusade. Richard, eager to expedite matters, had traveled separately from his fleet to France to confer with Philip regarding the initial leg of the voyage to the Mediterranean. It is at this juncture in our story that Richard makes one of his most significant mistakes. He and Philip agreed to split all crusade profits 50-50. While the idea behind this decision was reasonable, focusing on loot distracts from victory, Richard's assumption that he and Philip would be in lockstep throughout the entire crusade proved to be woefully misguided. In practice, the issue of dividing the loot would eventually drive a wedge between the two monarchs. Upon Richard's arrival in France, he was dismayed to find that his fleet had not yet arrived. Growing increasingly impatient, a trait reminiscent of his father, he decided to hire ships to take him ahead to Sicily. The fleet would arrive two weeks after Richard, setting the stage for the challenges that awaited him in this unfamiliar political arena. One such challenge provided an amusing moment for our hero, as Richard witnessed a local whose appearance suggested non-noble birth engaged in hawking in the woods. In the Angevin Empire, hawking was considered a noble pursuit, and it was deemed a crime for anyone of lower social standing to partake in it. Richard, attempting to enforce his own lofty standards, stole the bird, which was likely a falcon. Unimpressed by Richard, whom no one in Sicily had likely ever heard of, and unfazed by the French that the king undoubtedly spoke, the locals defended the hawk's owner against the crusader king by pelting Richard with fruits and vegetables until the Lionheart was forced to beat a steady retreat. While Richard could have easily defended himself against the peasants, Signs of his restraint were evident, such as his breaking of his sword by smacking someone with its broadside. But the image of Richard fending off rotten fruit and, as one historian suggests, live chickens thrown at him adds a touch of amusement to the Crusader King's forced retreat. The second issue, however, would not have elicited amusement from Richard or his family. A potential benefit of stopping in Sicily was the opportunity to see his younger sister Joan. Joan, a victim of the societal norms of her time, fulfilled her feudal society's role by securing an alliance through marriage for the benefit of her father. In 1177, 13 years prior to Richard's visit, Joan married King William II of Sicily. Although the marriage did not produce a surviving heir, there was no move to annul it in search of a male heir. 
Instead, William and Joan named his aunt as the heir to the throne. This seemingly inconsequential detail gains significance when William passes away in November of 1189, just a year before Richard's arrival. Rather than William's aunt assuming the throne or Joan ruling in her husband's name, Tancred, a bastard cousin of King William, seized power and imprisoned Joan the widow. Upon Richard's arrival in Sicily, he promptly demanded his sister's release from imprisonment and sought the return of every penny from the dowry that had been paid 13 years earlier to the now-deceased William. The Devil's Brood had invested considerable resources to make Joan a queen. If she wasn't going to sit on a throne, the notoriously frugal Richard felt entitled to request a refund. Beyond the dowry, he included a host of undocumented demands that he claimed were promised by William to Henry. These included a gilded chair for Joan, a silk tent accommodating 200, dishes, cups, wine, 100 ships, and a gilded table measuring 12 feet in length. While the request for more ships made practical sense during the journey to the Holy Land, the necessity of a fancy 12-foot table for someone en route to Jerusalem for a holy war raises intriguing questions. Diplomacy between Richard and Tancred broke down, and Richard's men lingered in Sicily for six months to avoid sailing through the winter storm season. This delay also provided an opportunity for his mother to arrive with a new bride from Spain in tow. Richard had decided to end his prior engagement to Philip's sister Alice, though he had not yet mustered the courage to inform Francis King that the nearly two-decade-long engagement was off. Soldiers, prone to wearing out their welcomes, began to exhibit undisciplined behavior. Richard's normally disciplined army accrued massive gambling debts, and frustration soon grew over rising food prices, signaling that Sicily could not sustain such a large force. As the days passed, an international incident became inevitable. Eager to address his soldiers' frustrations, Richard shifted negotiations from words to swords, forcibly taking over a wealthy Byzantine monastery and swiftly fortifying it. On October 4th, Richard's forces conquered the city of Messina and celebrated with significant looting. Richard soon saw the benefits of bloodying his troops as a way of preparing them for the Crusades, likening these military maneuvers to professional sports teams playing teams from significantly lower divisions during the preseason. While the conquest proved easy for Richard, the act held significant weight for Tancred. Messina was the second most important city on the island, and Richard held the city's sizable population hostage, raising his own banners over the town's walls. This caught the attention of King Philip of France, who openly wondered why there were no French banners besides Richard's in the city, given their prior agreement to split everything during the Crusades 50-50. On this point, I find myself siding with Richard. Philip played no role in either conquering Messina or pursuing Tancred to make peace with Richard. 
In fact, upon their arrival in Sicily en route to the Crusades, Philip was granted luxurious quarters in Tancred's palace, while Richard had to purchase lodging outside of the capital. To Richard, it was evident that Tancred was attempting to sway Philip into an alliance against him. Richard took the request to raise French banners seriously, perceiving it as a threat. His men swiftly constructed a timber fortress called Matagrafon on high ground overlooking the city. This construction suggested Richard's apprehension about Tancred's potential response and whether the French crusaders would side with the Sicilian ruler. Within a few days, the fort was assembled, solidifying Richard's position. Faced with this show of strength, Tancred promptly sought a truce, emerging from the negotiation much stronger than many anticipated. As part of the deal, Tancred returned Joan to her brother's care and reimbursed her dowry of 20,000 gold pieces in full, as well as agreeing to a future marriage between Richard's four-year-old nephew Arthur and one of Tancred's daughters. Furthermore, both Richard and Philip recognized Tancred as the rightful king of Sicily, providing protection against claims from Tancred's aunt, who was supported by the future German Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, a figure who will play a significant role in future events. The activities in Sicily also provided the opportunity to address Philip who was furious with Richard's argument that they were not yet on a crusade and therefore he was not entitled to half of the loot gained from Sicily, including the recently returned dowry. Richard decided to concede and pay up half of the loot, but only if Philip agreed to accept that his engagement with Alice was permanently off. The three kings sealed the agreement with a feast on Christmas Day. Richard's new bride, Berengaria of Navarre, would arrive within two months, just in time for Lent, a period during which the Catholic Church did not allow marriages to take place. Richard would have to take his bride-to-be with him to the Holy Land. It remains unclear whether Richard and Berengaria had ever met before she arrived in Sicily. She seems to have been handpicked by Richard's elderly mother, Eleanor, who had momentarily laid down her responsibilities of running the Angevin Empire in order to personally travel to fetch and escort her to her son. Berengaria brought with her the possibilities of expanding the Angevin Empire southward, as her homeland, Navarre, was a small kingdom situated between Aquitaine and the larger Spanish kingdom of Castile. The nature of their marriage remains ambiguous. The union produced no children during its eight-year tenure, and there are even rumors that it was never consummated. Berengaria would go down in history as the only English queen to never set foot in England. However, upon Richard's death, she never remarried and largely stayed out of the political limelight. Philip, still disgusted by how his sister Alice had been treated by Richard and his family, left Sicily mere hours before the bride-to-be would arrive. 
The Crusaders left Sicily with valuable experience, loot, and an ally in their rear, capable of delivering supplies to them from Europe. As they set sail towards Acre, they likely smiled at their fortunate luck. However, those smiles were quickly wiped off their faces by a Mediterranean storm that split the fleet. While Eleanor had returned home to England, Joan and Berengaria sailed on the designated women's ship to the Holy Land. This ship was separated from the fleet and shipwrecked on the shores of Cyprus. Although historical sources often refer to Cyprus as an accidental conquest, there is evidence suggesting that Richard had pre-planned for an invasion. Whether he would have attempted it without the push of the storm, however, remains unknown. Cyprus was ruled by Isaac Commodus, who took the title of emperor, a nod to his thin legal connections to the throne of the Byzantine Empire. The women were held captive on their ships at the port city of Limassol, as locals collected loot that was washed ashore to be confiscated for their emperor Isaac. When Richard arrived, he not only demanded the return of his bride and sister, but also sought compensation for the wrongs inflicted upon the women during their imprisonment among the wreckage. Isaac responded with inappropriate language, and the war was declared. Richard employed a maneuver he would repeat during the crusade, leading a cavalry charge directly off the ships through shallow ocean water. Limassol was quickly besieged and forced to surrender. According to a chronicler traveling with Richard, he personally captured Isaac's banner after unhorsing the emperor. Isaac was defeated and agreed to turn over his castles and 3,500 marks as compensation for the suffering caused by his actions. He even gave Richard his imperial tent. The next morning, however, Isaac was nowhere to be found. Supposedly, he was spooked, suspecting that Richard was planning to betray him. But there's nothing in Richard's character that suggests this to be true. According to the Code of Chivalry, a knight's word was unbreakable. And there are but a few moments in Richard's entire life where someone could make an accusation that he had not lived up to the ideals of chivalry. Similar to the situation in Sicily, the defense of Cyprus was not up to the challenge of Richard's army. Isaac repeatedly fled after forces clashed, forcing Richard to pursue. At each stop, Richard destroyed castles, and stories of Isaac's magnificent horse, Falvel, continually entered Richard's thoughts. In fact, there's good evidence that Richard was more enamored with Falvel than his betrothed, Berengaria. Finally, with nowhere left to run, Isaac surrendered the entire island, including his horse, to Richard. In the agreement, the emperor asked for only two things. First, that his daughter would be treated mercifully, and secondly, that he would not be confined in irons, something he had a massive phobia of. The daughter was placed in Joan's court, and Richard ordered gold and silver shackles to be made for Isaac Commodus, thus fulfilling both promises. Cyprus's proximity to the Holy Land made it an ideal refueling location, ensuring that Richard would always have an exit plan if the crusade went poorly. 
However, he did not intend to need that exit plan, as he had a lot to make up for in such a short amount of time. His father had delayed the crusade, keeping Richard from what he felt was his religious duty. Waiting in Sicily to avoid dangerous winter storms in the Mediterranean, as well as his obsessive pursuit of Isaac, meant the King Philip of France had arrived more than a month before he would. On June 8th, the war that would define the Lionheart would finally begin. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.